Hey, how's everybody doing today? Hotel. Hey, this is Michael M. Hotel, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. I'm a talk show host, researcher, lecturer, and writer. Uh, today is Saturday, March 17th, 2018. It is St. Patrick's Day. And I wanted to uh, do this presentation. I've talked about this topic uh, in the past, but I wanted to do this presentation dealing with uh, the history of St. Patrick's Day and why St. Patrick's Day is not for African-Americans, why St. Patrick's Day is not for African-Americans. And we'll deal with the history of who St. Patrick was, the history of St. Patrick's Day. We'll also talk about how the Irish became white, okay? How the Irish became white as well, okay? All right, so, and then we'll do, uh, we'll talk briefly about the uh, online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We'll talk some about that, and we'll talk some about the uh, upcoming online uh, lecture I'm doing at our online school uh, coming up soon, dealing with the film Black Panther, okay? And uh, a deep analysis of the film Black Panther. All right, so hey, share this broadcast uh, on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also, okay? Okay, how's everybody doing today? All right, so uh, follow our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network. And also uh, sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K E M E T, the 22828. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828 to sign up for our email newsletter as well. Okay, so uh, today is another St. Patrick's Day. And many of us remember growing up uh, and we go to school and we have to wear green on St. Patrick's Day. Um, and if you didn't wear green, you were pinched. We were taught to celebrate St. Patrick's Day growing up as children, Okay. But most people don't know who St. Patrick was. We don't know why we were taught to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. We don't know really uh, mo most of what we know about uh, St. Patrick and St. Patrick's Day. Mo mo well, let me phrase it. Most of what we know about St. Patrick's uh, St. Patrick is false. A lot of it is from mythology and just false. OK, so this is what we're going to uh, uh, talk about today. All right. So. Uh, St. Patrick was a um, English-British uh, Christian missionary, as well as a British bishop and apostle. Uh, and he was known as a patron saint to Ireland, okay? He was a bishop and apostle to Ireland. Um, contrary to popular belief, he was not Irish. We're going to talk about that. He was not Irish, all right? And he was born, um, we don't have an exact date. For his birth. He was born around 385 AD, 385 AD. So he lived in the fourth and fifth century. Uh, he, he died March 17th, 461 AD, March 17th, 461 AD. A good uh, resource for history on uh, Irish history is this book right here, the Everything Irish History Heritage Book, the Everything Irish History Heritage Book. So uh, I started doing research. You know, I've done research and, and presentations on all the uh, holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, uh, the 4th of July, uh, uh, all of them, um, uh, St. Patrick's Day, uh, all the holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day. So uh, going back to about 2011, when I started researching 
um, St. Patrick's Day, 2011, 2012, uh, I wanted to really, uh, to understand St. Patrick's Day, I had to research some Irish history. So this book right here gives some background information that everything Irish history heritage book uh, by Amy Hackney Blackwell and Ryan Hackney. Okay. So I have a number of sources for this, for this presentation. All right. This is not, this is not the first time I've dealt with this topic. All right. So, uh, yeah, I said that he was British and not Irish. Yeah. We're going to get to that. Okay. All right. So, uh, this is known as his feast day. He dies March 17th, 461 AD in the fifth century. Okay. He's can he was canonized as a uh, Christian saint. And this is known as his feast day. So you have celebrations historically going back a thousand years to uh, celebrate St. Patrick. All right. So uh, the Irish observed this day, March 17th, as a religious holiday for 1000 years. Patrick's Day, which falls during the Christian season of Lent. And Lent, we know, leads up to uh, Easter, right? Easter, Istra, Oistra, Ishtar. Look up the etymological derivation of the word Istra, estrogen. Okay, that's a whole nother conversation. I have a separate presentation dealing with the history of Easter, all right? But uh, look up the word Easter and look at the etymological derivation. Okay, so... Uh, on St. Patrick's Day, which falls during the Christian season of Lent, Irish families would traditionally attend church in the morning and celebrate in the afternoon. Lenten, okay, the, the celebration of Lent, uh, prohibits uh, against the consumption of meat. Uh, well, back at this time, it pro prohibited against the consumption of meat. Uh, and these prohibitions were uh, were waived during this period of time, okay? Um, and they were uh, for St. Patrick's Day, they were waived and people would dance, drink and feast on the on the traditional meal of Irish bacon and cabbage. OK, this traditional meal. All right. So when we look at um, who Patrick was. All right. I'm going to look at who Patrick was. We'll look at um, the connection between um, an example of the Christian church shutting down the knowledge coming from ancient Egypt. We'll look at that. We'll look at um, myths about St. Patrick and how many of these myths that we've been taught throughout the years about St. Patrick are false. Like Patrick's color was not green, it was blue. Green comes from somewhere else. Then we'll look at how the Irish became white. OK, how the Irish became white, which is a fascinating history <laughs> in itself, how the Irish became white. All right. OK, so look, hey, share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. OK. And then uh, we have the information in the thread of the broadcast also about uh, the online courses uh, that I teach as well. All right. If you need me to post that link, let me know. We'll post it again for you. Okay, so St. Patrick lived during the 5th century. He's the patron saint and national apostle of Ireland. Now, he was born in Roman Britain, okay? He was born in Roman Britain, and some sources say most likely Scotland, all right? So Great Britain was England, Scotland, and Wales. But this was under the control of the Romans, under the control of the Roman Empire, all right? He's born in approximately 385 A.D., 
Okay, he was kidnapped and brought to Ireland as a slave at the age of 16. He was kidnapped by Irish slave traders, okay, and taken into Ireland. He later escaped, but returned to Ireland and was credited with bringing Christianity to, to the people of Ireland. Now, in the centuries following Patrick's death, uh, the mythology surrounding his life became ever more ingrained in the Irish culture. Perhaps the most well-known legend is that he explained the Holy Trinity of the, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit using the three leaves of a native Irish clover, the shamrock, right? But shamrocks don't, don't exist, okay? I mean, I mean the, 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 uh, the type of shamrock that it was said to use don't really exist, so since around the 9th to 10th century, people in Ireland have been observing the Roman Catholic feast, feast day of St. Patrick on March 17th. Increasingly, however, the first parade held to honor St. Patrick's Day took place not in Ireland, but in the United States. On March 17th, 1762, Irish soldiers serving in the English military marched through New York City. OK, and along with their music, the parade helped the soldiers uh, reconnect with their Irish roots, as well as with fellow Irishmen serving in the English army. OK, so over the next 35 years, Irish patriotism among American immigrants flourished, prompting the rise of the so-called Irish aid societies like the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick and the Ibernian uh, 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 Society. Each group would hold parades featuring bagpipes, which actually first became popular in the Scottish and British armies, as well as drums. OK. All right. So that's a, that's a little uh, that's a little background history there. OK. Uh, let me post this link again here. Uh, and this is for the um, online courses that I teach at our online school. All right. Okay, and we'll talk some about that later, like ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afra, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Now, in 1848, well, let me back up for a minute. So we know about the Irish potato famine. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that some. So the Irish potato famine hits in 1845, and you, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people who die. Uh, you're going to have about a million who leave Ireland. A lot of them come here to the U.S. So these are a lot of poor immigrants. Prior to that, when we go back to the 18th century, like the late 18th century, the Irish who were here, these were mainly middle class Irish. When the Irish potato famine hits, you're going to have a different class of Irish who come in. Now, in 1848, several New York Irish aid societies decided to unite their parades to form one official New York City St. Patrick Day parade. Today, that parade is the world's oldest civilian parade and the largest uh, in the United States with over 150,000 participants, okay? So uh, that's a little background uh, information. You can check out history.com, history.com, St. Patrick's Day, history.com for more information on that. Now it's expected that uh, 149 million people in the U.S. will participate in St. Patrick's Day, will celebrate St. Patrick's Day, and they will spend an estimated $5.9 billion. Uh, that's research coming from the National Retail Federation, NRF.com, the National Retail Federation. All right. So if we go back 
and look at that's a brief overview if we go back and look at some history of of saint patrick okay here's what we find so um on, on this day in 461 AD, St. Patrick, who was a Christian missionary, bishop and apostle of Ireland, dies at uh, Saul Down Patrick, Ireland, four, seven, uh, March 17th, 461 AD. All right. Now, keep in mind that at the time Patrick lives, when we talk about the Christian church, we're not talking about the Catholic church. The Catholic Church does not exist in the third and fourth century. The Catholic Church does not come into existence until 11th century AD, right around 1050, 1052 AD is going to split from the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Catholic Church does not exist in third, fourth century AD. When you have the first council of Nicaea, 325 AD, okay, and the Pope called for the council to take place, it wasn't Constantine who ordered the 318 bishops to convene. That was the Pope. Constantine did not have the authority to do that. If you read the historical origin of Christianity by uh, Dr. Uh, Walter Williams, he deals with this in his book. And I know Dr. Walter Williams, he's a friend of mine, one of my teachers, I've interviewed him a number of times, okay? So I know you have some documentaries and things like this to talk about the Catholic Church and the First Council of Nicaea, Catholic Church doesn't exist at this time, okay? That's the Eastern Orthodox Church. All right, so much of what is known about Patrick's legendary life comes from the Confessio, the Confessio. And this was a book that Patrick wrote in his last years living. He was born in Great Britain, probably Scotland, okay? Because we know Great Britain is England, Scotland, and Wales, right? England, Scotland, and Wales. He was born to a well-to-do Christian family of Roman citizenship. Now, Patrick was captured and enslaved at the age of 16 by uh, Irish marauders. Patrick was not Irish, okay? So when people were talking about, hey, I'm part Irish, I'm celebrating St. Patrick's Day, what the hell does that have to do with it, right? Like, you know, like, <laughs> I posted on Facebook, some of y'all saw a Facebook post, I said, we'll talk about this uh, today. And I said, uh, why St. Patrick's Day is not for African-Americans. And then somebody said, well, I'm part Irish. What the hell does that have to do with it? Now, if you would now, here's the question that everybody should ask themselves. Right. See, this is why it's important to understand history. OK, because <laughs> this is why it's important to understand history. Now, this is the question you should ask yourself. If you wear green on St. Patrick's Day, will you wear red, black and green on African Liberation Day? If not, why not? If you wear green on St. Patrick's Day, if you one sixteenth, one quarter Irish, if you wear green on St. Patrick's Day, will you wear red, black, and green on African Liberation Day, which is May 25th? If not, why not? Okay, <laughs> that's a legitimate question. All right. Everybody share this broadcast on your on your Facebook page, okay? Now that's something that most people don't even think about, right? And African Liberation Day uh, is celebrated around the world, celebrated here in the U.S. I participate in African Liberation Day celebrations, and it celebrates the hard fought achievement that African countries uh, went through to free themselves of colonial powers, okay? And for more information on African Liberation Day, go to timeanddate.com. Uh, actually, this is what I'll show you this quickly because this, this deals with history also. 
So let me bring this up right here. I'll show you this quickly and then we'll continue. But that's a legitimate question that most people never even thought to uh, ask themselves. Many people don't know African Liberation Day exists. All right. So let me blow this up so you can see this. All right. Here we go. All right. So let's take a look at this quickly here. All right. So this is from timeanddate.com. African Liberation Day. May 25th is African Liberation Day. On this day, many African countries celebrate the hard fought achievement of their freedom from European colonial powers. Okay. Uh, African Liberation Day is set up, celebrated by many African communities around the world. It is a permanent mass institution in the, in the worldwide Pan African movement. The day is observed in countries such as Ghana, Kenya, Spain, Tanzania, the United Kingdom, and the United States. All right. So I'm going to post this link here uh, for, for more information on African Liberation Day. All right. But if you wear green on St. Patrick's Day, will you wear red, black and green on African Liberation Day? All right. OK, we'll post that link right there. OK, let's continue here. All right. So um, let's continue. OK, so most of what um, is known about Patrick comes from the Confessio, which is a book that he wrote during his last years. Um, and he was born in Great Britain, probably in Scotland, to a well-to-do uh, well Christian family of Roman citizen, of Roman citizenship. Patrick was captured and enslaved at the age of 16 by Irish, Irish marauders, all right? And um, he was enslaved for about six years or so, okay? And at this time, uh, Britain is under the control of the uh, of the Roman Empire, okay. So it's important for us to understand um, understand this history. Okay. Now for the next uh, for the next years, for the next six years, uh, he worked as a herder in Ireland. Okay, uh, herding animals, uh, turning to a deepening religious faith for comfort. Now, following the council, following the counsel of a voice he heard in a dream one night, um, he escaped and found passage on a ship to Britain, where he was eventually reunited with his family. Okay, where he was eventually reunited with his family. Okay, should be able to hear me now. Okay, good. All right. So, um, according to the Confessio which is a book that Patrick wrote towards the end of his life. Um, in Britain, he had another dream in which an individual named Victorious gave him a letter entitled The Voice of the Irish. And so as he reads this letter, uh, Patrick seemed to hear the voices of Irishmen pleading with him to return to their country and walk among them once more. OK, so after studying for the priesthood, Patrick was ordained a bishop. He arrived in Ireland in some sources say 432 AD, some sources say 433 AD. Most sources I see say 432 AD. And he began preaching the gospel, converting many of the many thousands of Irish and building churches around the country. After 40 years of living in poverty, teaching, traveling and working tirelessly, Patrick dies on March 17, 461 AD in Saul, uh, Ireland, uh, where he where he had first built the church. Now, since that time, countless legends have grown, uh, have grown surrounding Patrick. Um, he was made the patron saint of Ireland. 
and he is said to have baptized hundreds of people on a single day and to have used a three-leaf clover, the famous shamrock, to describe the Holy Trinity, okay? But three-leaf three clovers don't even exist. Now, in art, he is often portrayed trampling on snakes uh, in accordance with the belief that he drove uh, the snakes out of Ireland, which is false. We're going to get to that. See, there's a lot of myths surrounding it surrounded Patrick. And I remember growing up in school, we were told this was one of the things that we were told about Patrick. He drove the snakes out of Ireland. These were African-American teachers teaching us this nonsense. They didn't know any better because they didn't understand history. So uh, for thousands of years, the Irish had observed a day of Patrick's death as a religious holiday, attending church in the morning and celebrating with food and drink in the afternoon. Uh, okay, so, and we talked about how the first, uh, we see the first St. Patrick's Day parade did not take place in Ireland. It took place in the U.S. in, in uh, March 17, 1762 in New York City, right? Okay, now, if we look at, let's look at some information from our brother, Tony Brown. okay? Let's look at Nile Valley contributions to civilization. Nile Valley contributions to civilization by Tony Brown. If you don't have this book, you should get it. Okay, this is my copy. It's, it's beat up. It's about 20, 24 years old. Okay, <laughs> Nile Valley contributions to civilization by Tony Brown. All right. So let's look at page 193 and 194. 193 and 194. It's in the section called the development of European secret societies. Okay. It's under the, it's, uh, it's in the chapter, the Nile Valley presence in Europe, the Nile Valley presence in Europe. And it's in the section, the development of European secret societies. All right. Now they talked about Patrick becoming a patron saint, right? A patron saint is a saint that watches over a city or watches over a country, watches over a group of people. And they say this, their spirit watches over these people. Okay. So he was the patron saint to Ireland. He was said to watch over these people. St. Nicholas, who actually was an African saint, because a lot of your early Christian saints were African people. St. Nicholas was the patron saint to, uh, to children to prostitutes, to pawnbrokers, money lenders, things like this, St. Nicholas. And it was said that his spirit watches over these groups of people. St. Maurice, who was a Moor, was a patron saint to Germany, okay? Now the concept of the patron saints come from the Neturu, the plural Neturu, Netur singular, which comes straight out of ancient chemistry, comes straight out of ancient Egypt, who were these deities who were different aspects of forces of nature. In reality, different aspects of that one creative, one, that one supreme force, that one supreme being. When you look at the formation of Christianity, it comes from the, they took fragments of the, from the periphery of African spiritual systems to form Christianity as, as Professor James Small correctly teaches us. When you look at the word Christ, 
Christ is not a name, it is a title. We know when we read books like Christianity Before Christ by Dr. John G. Jackson. Okay, you know what? At the beginning of this presentation, I should have said, I may say some things that are outside the circumference of your own awareness. Just because you never heard them before or disagree with them and don't like them does not mean that they're not true. This means you have to do some research to understand what I'm talking about, okay? These may be some things outside the circumference of your own awareness. And when I teach my, when I teach my online courses, especially ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Mahafa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, you know, I go deep into this type of information. All right. So, um, and once again, it, it, I'll post a link here uh, on the broadcast for uh, information on my online courses that I teach. They're all on demand. You can register for those, start watching right away. You can also go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well, okay? So you have to understand some history to, to understand this. I'm trying to give you a Cliff Notes version of this, right? It's, it's So you understand what I'm talking about. Professor Kaba Kamene, Booker T. Coleman, formerly known as Booker T. Coleman, one of my teachers, he, he talks about how to understand the existence of something, you first must understand the pre-existence of existence, okay? Because historical events don't take place in a vacuum. They are the sequence of historical events that lead up to a larger event taking place. There's a domino effect. So that book, I, I said, Christianity Before Christ by Dr. John G. Jackson. Hold on. I think I have it here. Do I have it here? Okay. It's somewhere. It's my other stack of books. Christianity Before Christ by Dr. John G. Jackson is one. Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization by Tony Browder is uh is 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 the, is the book that the information is coming from right now okay all right so um on page 193 and 194 nile valley contributions to civilization okay he talks about how um in, on the side of the page in the margins he talks about dahuti the deity dahuti the netter dahuti okay coming out of ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt. Kemet mean, meaning one of the original names for Egypt. Egypt is an Arabic word of Greek derivation. Egypt means land of the blacks. He said the Houthi was known to Europeans as Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes thrice great, Hermes Trismegistus, okay? And uh, Hermes was a, a, a great philosopher, priest, and king. He said Hermes was regarded as the god of wisdom, um, the God of wisdom, science, medicine, magic, measurement, mathematics. And he is said to have authored innumerable books on, on these and other subjects. Masons or Freemasons, right? Masons regard him as the author of all Masonic initiatory rituals, okay? Referring to Hermes Trismegistus, which comes, which is a copy of Dehuti. It's a European copy of Dehuti. That was amongst the uh, I think those are amongst the Greeks, Hermes. Okay, so um, Hermes is said to have been the author of 42 books which contain the wisdom of ancient Egypt. Okay, 42 books which contain the wisdom of, uh, of ancient Egypt. According to Manly P. Hall, author Manly P. Hall, he said, quote, the Romans and later the Christians realized that until these books were eliminated, they could never bring the Egyptians into subjugation. Okay, so you gotta you, you you gotta understand what's taking place here. Until the Romans and later the uh, Christians 
realized, he said the Romans and later the Christians realized that until these books were eliminated, they could never bring the Egyptians into subjugation, okay? So they're dealing with the, 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 the teachings basically coming out of the ancient mystery system, the, te the, the ancient teachings from ancient Kemet. Books on the hermetic sciences was said to contain information regarding the Egyptians' understanding of immortality, which was based on the knowledge that the body is the tomb of the soul. The body is the tomb of the soul. Okay, during the Greco-Roman occupation of Egypt, the soldiers formed a secret body for specialized scholarship and training in the hermetic sciences. They became known as Druids, Druids, and later moved from Egypt into Greece and Rome before establishing a school in Ireland. So you so you got to understand this history of who was in Ireland and who was there when Patrick goes in in 432 AD because he was ordered by Pope Celestine I to go in and Christianize these people. But the reason why they sent him in to Christianize these people is because the teachings that the Druids in Ireland were practicing was a, was a watered-down version of the teachings coming out of ancient Kemet. And they stood in the way of the Roman Empire Christianizing, proselytizing the population there. So we're going to find out why. Okay? So now, let's look at this quickly. Let's, let's look over and look at quickly Freemasonry. All right? And this is something that we deal with in the uh, online class that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Okay, let's look, uh, let's look at Freemasonry. Let me fast forward here. Just give me a minute. How's everybody doing today? Share this broadcast on your uh, own Facebook page. Hey, invite your friends to tune in. They're going to be blown away by this type of information. Okay, so one. So here are, uh, here's a depiction of Druids. And Druid means he who knows in old Irish. Okay, Druid means he who knows in old Irish. And the Druids were said to study the Gnosis. The Gnosis means true knowledge. Okay. And they're dealing with a watered down version of the teachings coming out of ancient Egypt that the Greeks and Romans learn when they're when they conquer Egypt and that they're learning. So the Greeks invade in 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 uh, 332 A.D. under uh, Alexander the Greek. OK. And uh, I think I said it was 332 when uh, 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 Patrick goes in 432 A.D. when Patrick goes in. 432 A.D. when Pope Celestine the first sends him in. It's 332 A.D. when uh, Alexander the Greek invades. Some people call him Alexander the Great, but there's nothing great about him. Okay. And then we know the Roman occupation. Romans conquer somewhere around 46 B.C. Something like that. Um, uh, in uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, 46 B.C. in uh, um, Egypt. Okay. So 330, 332 B.C. 332 BC with Alexander the Greek, Alexander the Great, 332 BC, the Greeks, then the Romans, 
okay? And then in 432 AD, you're gonna have uh, Pope Celestine the first St. Patrick in, all right? Okay, now let's continue here. I wanna show you this here about uh, Freemasonry. Okay, so uh, let's see here, just a second. Okay, here we go. All right, now, the word Mason is derived from the Latin words mass and sun. Mason means child of light and expresses the desire to pursue light, which is a metaphor for the sun, which symbolizes knowledge. The term child of light or sons and daughters of light, because we taught women as well, we didn't discriminate was first used to identify students who had, who had completed 42 years of study in the temples of ancient Kemet or ancient Egypt. Many Masonic temples were modeled after the temples of Kemet, places where light or knowledge was imparted in a series of steps or degrees. So for eons, the concept of um, light light was associated with knowledge okay and even today when you see a cartoon the cartoon character gets a bright idea right even bright associated with an idea the light bulb goes off over their head it's associated with light so when the moors go in in 711 a.d they're taking the teachings from ancient kemet ancient egypt into the dark continent which was europe Okay, uh, uh, Africa was not the dark continent. It was Europe that was the dark continent, all right? Africa was not the dark continent. Europe was the dark continent. Europe was in the dark ages because the Vandals and the Visigoths came down from Northwestern Europe and they crushed the Western portion of the Roman Empire in 476 AD, fifth century. So this is, this is, so you, you have to understand this chronology of history. So when we deal with the uh, Freemasonry, we have to understand where that foundation comes from. It comes from African people. Okay, so during the Greco-Roman occupation of Egypt, the soldiers formed a secret body for specialized scholarship and training in the Hermetic sciences. They became known as Druids and later moved from Egypt into Greece and Rome before establishing a school in Ireland. So they're taking these teachings from ancient Kemet into Ireland. Now, when they talk about, uh, and you can read Egypt on the Potomac by Tony Browder, Egypt on the Potomac by Tony Browder. When they talk about, when Browder talks about how um, many Masonic temples were modeled after the temples of ancient Kemet, places where light or knowledge was imparted in a series of steps or degrees, this is where we get the concept of you going to college, getting degrees, your credentials and degrees, because the concept of liberal arts comes straight out of ancient Kemet. It comes from the mystery schools because this they were teaching the liberal arts in the mystery schools, the rhetoric and the arithmetic and logic and things like this. The seven liberal arts, the, uh, when you read um, uh, uh Stolen Legacy by George G.M. James. Stolen Legacy, he breaks this down. He talks about the trivium and the quadrivium, the three and the four. He talks about, he breaks down the several liberal arts, the quivium, they're broken up into the quivium and the quadrivium, okay? So 
page 193 of Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, okay? Um, in the section, uh, the Nile Valley presence in Europe, in this uh, part, the development of European secret societies, all right? Uh, uh, Browder says, one of the most enduring aspects of Nile Valley civilization was the proliferation of its scientific and philosophical thought, which became known outside of Kemet as the mystery schools or the hermetic sciences, Hermes, okay? From the earliest of times, the masses were, were poor and ignorant, European masses. From the earliest of times, European, uh, the masses of Europeans were poor and ignorant, while only the most fortunate men, noblemen, lords, scribes, and various religious leaders were provided with an education, okay? So we may say the top 10%, only about the top 10% in Europe were provided with an education, historically. Of this group, an even smaller number were provided, or even uh, of this group, an even smaller number knew how to adequately read or write. So when the Moors go in, in 711 AD, 8th century, these Africans known as the Moors, who are descendants of the Garamantes, right? About 90, some sources say 95% of Europeans were illiterate. They could neither read nor write. Yeah, kings and queens who were illiterate, couldn't read or write. And the Moors were going to teach them how to read and write. They introduced the uh, uh, alchemy, which we call chemistry. They introduced periodic tables, they introduced all type of foods. The, the Moors saved Europe, bring Europe out of the dark ages. And all that stuff comes to kick us in the behind. Okay. Okay. So everybody, how's everybody doing today? Hey, share this broadcast on your Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. Okay. All right, so of this group, and be sure to visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com um, also, okay? AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have a lot of information there for you, and um, you can register for my online courses that I teach. If you like this type of information, my online courses will blow you away. We just posted a link again for the online courses here on the thread. <clears throat> and I'm doing an a online lecture coming up in the next, next couple of weeks dealing with the film Black Panther also. So that's at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well. All right, now, okay, now, I'm about to get into the deep part dealing with Christianity. So this may be outside the circumference of some people's awareness. Does not mean it's not true, just means you have to do some research to understand what I'm talking about. So of this group, an even smaller number knew how to adequately read or write. The dogma of Christianity was readily available for the masses of people who were poor and ignorant, while the educated elite studied the ancient teachings, which were also called gnosis or true knowledge. Well, wait a second. If what the, what the educated elite are studying are the ancient, oh, there's a watered down version of ancient teachings coming out of ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt and Africa, right? If that's called the Gnosis, which means true knowledge, then what is it that the ruling elite are making readily available to the masses who are poor and ignorant? What is that called? I'm not attacking anybody's religion. I'm dealing with history. Most of our people don't understand this history. I listen to what people say. I can tell what they haven't read. I can tell what they don't understand. 
So the newly emerging schools of Hermetic, Neoplatonic, and Gnostic thought in Europe were loosely based on the Nile Valley principles of education. Nile Valley, the Nile Valley region of Africa, okay, in East Africa. Loosely based on the Nile Valley principles of education, which were designed to awaken within an individual knowledge of self. This knowledge led to an awareness of the powers of God which exist within man as expressed in the myths of Osar, Osset, and Heru. You didn't have to look outside of yourself for a savior. Now this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness. You did not have to look outside of yourself for a savior. We knew that a supreme force existed and we understood different manifestations of that one supreme force. But we also understood that the power of the creator existed inside of us. We didn't have a concept of being born in sin. That's not that's not something that African people had traditionally. We didn't have a concept of being born in sin. Okay. So this knowledge led, this knowledge of self led to an awareness of the powers of God which exist within man as expressed in the myths of Osar, Aset, and Heru. The Greeks called them Isis, Osiris, and Horus. Okay, so let me flip back over here to the uh, PowerPoint presentation to show you this here. We'll show you some depictions of Osara Aset, and Heru. Okay. Uh, show this to you in just a second. All right. And we know that um, the, so this is the first, um, known as the first Holy Trinity, okay? And we have depictions of this carvings, uh, uh, depict, this story goes back to at least 3300 BC in uh, ancient Nubia, okay? And Browder talks about this in uh, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization. All right, so let's see. Okay, here we go. These are some of the things we deal with the, in the online class also. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach in school, okay? So we have Heru um, on my left. We have Heru on the left. Asar in the center, Aset, Isis on the right, okay? And there's another depiction of Aset and Heru, the baby Heru, born on December 25th of a virgin birth, okay, of an immaculate conception. In uh, a copy of Isis or Aset, because the Greeks call her Isis, that's not what we called her, was the DC comic superheroine, superhero Isis, who gets her powers from ancient Egypt. If you, um, last time I checked, they had episodes of this on Hulu, the streaming service Hulu. I, I watched it a couple of years ago. And when you watch it, they talk about how she gets her powers from ancient Egypt. They talk about the daughters of Hathor, things like this, Het Heru. Um, she has the sun disc of Ra, she has the horns of uh, Het Heru or Hathor. The symbolism comes straight out of ancient Egypt, ancient Kemet. Okay. And then from, from this story of Heru, 
the son of God being born on December 25th, you get the Black Madonna and Child. The Black Madonna and Child was worshipped all throughout Europe. The Black Madonna and Child was worshipped all throughout Europe. Okay. When we look at Notre Dame, right? Notre Dame means Our Lady, and Notre Dame was built among uh, uh, built on the remains of a temple dedicated to Osset or Isis. And then from that story, the Black Madonna and Child worship all throughout Europe. You get the decolonized, the, 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 the decolorized version of uh, of uh, the Virgin Mary. Okay, depicted in the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus, depicted as Europeans. Okay, originally they were not depicted as Europeans. With the rise, what you find is that with the rise of white supremacy and Europeans coming out of the dark ages, circumnavigating the globe, with the rise of white supremacy, you have a rise in the European phenotype and you have a changing in these various uh, figures that had existed for hundreds of years. You have a changing in their depiction, changing them into European. We see this in mythology because Zeus in Greek mythology, Zeus was was African. When you study Greek mythology, they tell you Zeus comes from Ethiopia. Hercules was African. OK, but you have a changing in all of this. OK, with the rise of white supremacy, you have the rise of the European phenotype as well. OK, so let's continue. I think there's one more slide I need to show you here. I do. I talk about this in the online course. We don't have time to get into this here. Why Christmas celebrate on December 25th. One time to get to that. But OK, that's what I want to show you there. Because that's uh, this is I have limited time here and <laughs> this is getting off into a whole nother conversation. All right. So page 193 of Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization by Tony Browder. This knowledge, this knowledge of self that existed in the uh, teachings coming from the Nile Valley, coming from ancient Egypt, coming from ancient Kemet was designed to awaken within an individual knowledge of self. The knowledge, this knowledge led to a, an awareness of the powers of God, which exists within man is expressed in the myths of Asar, Aset, and Heru, okay? This philosophy was in direct conflict with Christianity. Now, when you look at Christ, like I said, Christ is a, a title, not a name. Christ. Or, or, uh, uh, and Christ comes from Christos. Christos meaning anointed. Christos from, from, comes from kares, the comedic word kares, two words, ka meaning, ka meaning spirit, rest meaning to rise, k-a-r-s-t. And the goal was to raise your conscious level, to acquire knowledge, to raise your conscious level, raise your spiritual level, okay? So you become closer to the creator and you awaken within you the power of the creator inside of you. That's in contradiction to what Christianity taught. Christianity taught that man was conceived in sin and that salvation could only be gained through Jesus the Christ, the Pope, or other accepted intermediaries. It's also important to understand that the letter J did not exist till 1630 AD. So even in the story, his name was not Jesus, it's, it's Yeshua. If you look up the word Jesus in the dictionary and study the etymology, it's going to take you back to Yeshua, okay, which is Hebrew and uh, either Aramaic or Amharic. I always forget which one it is. But the letter J did not exist till 1630 AD. The letter J is derived from the letter I. The letter J is derived from the letter I, okay? 
And um, if you read um, the historical origin of Christianity by Tony, about uh, Dr. Dr. Walter Williams, chapter nine deals with the whole history of the letter J and how the letter J came into existence. Okay, the letter the letter J is an I with a hook on it. So it's not by accident that in your twenty six character alphabet, the letter J comes after the letter I, H I J K. L M N O P. That's not by accident. The letter the letter J is the round for the letter I. The, the, when 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 this all this stuff was supposed to take place, and Jesus was supposed to have lived, the letter J didn't exist. Okay, so just so just so you all know, that is the uh that is the uh, Latinization of it. Um, U S is a uh, a Latin suffix. That's uh, uh, the uh, where you where you have Iesus and then you have the uh, English version. So it's uh, it was Iesus um, that you have talked about um, fifth century, sixth century things like this. Uh, it was Iesus coming from Yeshua with an I, Iesus, and then it's going to be anglicized to be Jesus with the J. Okay, um, and when you study Islam. In the Quran, the prophet's name is Isa with an I. Referring to who we call Jesus. He's referred to as the prophet Isa in the Quran. Because the letter J didn't exist. All right. So um, this philosophy was in direct conflict with Christianity, which taught that man was conceived in sin. That salvation could only be gained through Jesus the Christ, the Pope or other accepted intermediaries. One example of the clash between these opposing ideologies can be found studying the symbolism incorporated in the story of St. Patrick and the Druids of Ireland. This may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness, okay? Doesn't mean it's not true, it means you have to do some research to understand what I'm talking about, okay? One of the examples of the clash between these opposing ideologies, the ideology of African spiritual systems and awakening the creator that's inside of you, raising your conscious level, because as Professor James Small correctly teaches us, we are God having a human experience. And this brings you closer to the creator. Is in direct that those teachings are in direct conflict with Christianity. Christianity as it's practiced today. Early Christianity looked a lot different than what it is today. Early Christianity looked a lot more closer to traditional African spiritual systems. And like I said early on, a lot of your early Christians were Africans. But this is not taught. And there were ideological battles between African Christians and European Christians. And what the European Christians were pushing won out. This is what this is what was taking place at your ecumenical councils from 325 AD to about 1870, the first one, the first council of Nicaea. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go deep into this. For some people, I went really deep, but I'm, I'm just scratching the surface because I'm trying to stay on topic. I'm not going to go deep into this, but you have to research to understand the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. You have to understand Serapis Christos, S-E-R-A-P-I-S-C-H-R-I-O-S-T, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S, Serapis Christos. Because if you don't understand Serapis Christos, which was um, uh, introduced in uh, um, 
because Ptolemy the first Soterlagi, who was a general of Alexander the Greek, wanted to be consecrated as a uh, European pharaoh. If you don't understand Serapis Christos, you won't understand the Council of Nicaea and you won't understand this subsequent information. Okay, so you have to you have to understand uh, Serapis Christos. Okay, and uh, he was introduced um, was somewhere around 330 BC, I forgot the exact year. Um, Alexander the Greek invasion 332 BC, uh, about 320 BC, about 320 BC. He was introduced. Okay, this image, but, but Google Serapis Christos, S E R A P I S, Serapis Christos. All right, all right, now. One of the examples of the clash between these opposing ideologies can be found by studying the symbolism incorporated uh, in the story of St. Patrick and the Druids of Ireland. Peter Tompkins, in his wonderful book, Secrets of the Great Pyramid, provided a clue into this mystery in a brief overview of the Druids. So Peter Tompkins talks about how, and I showed you this in the um, PowerPoint slide. The Druid, the word Druid is an old Irish word, which means he who knows, he who knows. Julius Caesar, our earlier source on the subject of the Druid, of the Druids, considered the Druids highly educated and well organized. In De Bello Gallico, uh, Julius Caesar commented, quote, it is especially the object of the Druids to inculcate, to inculcate this, that souls do not perish, but after death pass into other bodies, and they consider, and they consider that by this belief, more than anything else, men can be led to cast away the fear of death, and to become courageous. Because historically, African people didn't have a concept of death. We understood that. Uh, you, 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 we understood that you come back in a uh, in another life. Okay, we understand. You know, it's, it's um not exactly the same as reincarnation, but similar to that. But we understood that you come back in in, in African cosmology. We understand that when a child is born, that is the spirit of a ancestor coming back to fulfill a purpose. Okay, so they discuss many points concerning the heavenly bodies and their motion, the extent of the universe and the world, the nature of things, the influence and ability of the immortal gods, and they instruct the youth in these things. Okay, so that's an uh, excerpt of Peter Tompkins' book, Secrets of the Great Pyramid, talking about the Druids. Now, the Druids were also known to dress in a style similar to the priestly kings of Kemet or the Nesubiti, okay? Um, Asians call them pharaohs. Pharaoh is not a term that we use. Nesubiti would be the correct term. Their heads were adorned with the uraeus, which was the symbol of the cobra that was worn on the crown of the Nesubiti or the pharaoh, okay? Now, we didn't have a, a fear of, um, of snakes, like you do in this European culture, which largely now, yes, they're poisonous snakes, things like this. You don't want to be bitten by one. But there's a fear of snakes in 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 your Western European culture, Christianized culture, 
because of the Adam and Eve mythology, right? Of the snake tempting Eve with the apple. Okay. Uh, so the whole story, if you actually understand African culture, spiritual systems, cosmology, right? The whole story doesn't make any sense because the the tree that they ate from, the tree that the, uh, and I want to show you this, where it is, uh, hold on, I'm trying to pull this back up with the, uh, with the Jewish, here we go. Okay, so the tree in, the, in Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve, now this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness, okay? The tree that the apple came from was called the tree of knowledge. And they were forbidden by the God of the Bible of eating from the tree of knowledge. Because he said, he said that they would become likened unto a God. And they were forbidden because they were not to become likened to a god well when we understand african spiritual systems and african cosmology we understand that we are god having a human experience when we go back and look between the clash between african spiritual systems and those teachings and christianity page 193 of nile valley contributions to civilization talks about how um that the, the, this knowledge was designed to awaken within the within an individual knowledge of self. This knowledge led to an awareness of the powers of God, which exists within man, as expressed in the myths of Asar or Set and Heru. This philosophy was in direct conflict with Christianity. We're talking about control over people, because when you look at why the Roman Empire adopted Christianity, that was Constantine in 312 AD. When we look at page 44 of the Everything Irish History and Heritage book, the Everything Irish History and Heritage book, when we look at page 44, Christi Christianity in late antiquity, the Roman Empire formally accepted Christianity when the Emperor Constantine converted in 312, um, 312 AD, common era, okay? As Christianity spread gradually throughout the empire, it percolated up through Gaul and into Britain. It arrived in Ireland sometime in the early 400s. But the reason why Constantine, you converted to Christianity because he saw it as a military strategy. He saw he can use the, the religion to conquer people. This is what this was about. This is about expanding the Roman Empire and conquering people's minds with it, converting them to Christianity. So the Druids also known, uh, the Druids were also known to dress in a style similar to the priests of ancient Kemet. And I don't know if you, you can see this is uh, similar to how they, this is a depiction of how they dress. Okay. Their heads were adorned with a uraeus, which was the symbol of the cobra. That was worn on the crown of the Nesubiti or Pharaoh. Because of this symbolic imagery, the Druids were often referred to by outsiders as the snake people. Because of this imagery, because they 
had the crown with the, a snake on it, they were oftentimes referred to by outsiders as the snake people. Their presence and ideology were viewed as a direct threat to the development of Christianity in Ireland. Let me repeat this. The presence and ideology of, of, of the Druids who were dealing with a watered down version of teachings coming out of ancient Kemet, coming out of ancient Egypt, were viewed as a direct threat to the development of Christianity in Ireland. The Druids are dealing with the Gnosis or the true knowledge. They're dealing with a watered down version of it, but they're dealing with the Gnosis or the true knowledge. What's, being, what's going to be pushed on the Irish coming from the Roman Empire, coming from the Romans, right, was what was made readily available to the European masses who were poor and ignorant, while the ruling elite studied a version of the teachings coming out of ancient Kemet, coming from our ancestors. So in 432 AD, 432 Common Era, Pope Celestine I sent a former British slave named Patrick into the region that we call Ireland to convert the population. Like I said in the beginning, Patrick was not even Irish. He was British, okay? In the name of Christianity, Patrick's army slew or killed thousands of Irishmen. And he is said to have founded more than 300 churches and baptized more than 120,000 people. Patrick also introduced the Roman alphabet and Latin literature into Ireland. He was rewarded by the Vatican with sainthood. And today, millions of people throughout the world celebrate St. Patrick's Day on his feast day, March 17th. To the average person, to the average person who dresses in green, wears shamrocks, and marches in parades, this day commemorates the myth of the man who drove the snakes out of Ireland. What most people fail to realize is that the snakes St. Patrick drove into the sea were not the snakes that crawled on the ground, but the snake people who walked on two feet and were once known as Druids. So Patrick was a mass murderer on behalf of the Christian church who was shutting, trying to shut down the teachings being taught by the Druids, which come out of ancient Kemet, which stood in the way of Christian domination through the Roman Empire. So he was sent basically as a hitman for the Christian church to kill these people to shut down this knowledge so they can impose Christianity upon the masses. This is this is what happened. This is who Patrick was. I'm not saying he never did anything good in his life. I'm saying that for African people to celebrate St. Patrick's Day doesn't make sense. People should read the book African People and European Holidays of Mental Genocide by Dr. Ishaka Musa Barashanga. Okay, African People and European Holidays of Mental Genocide by Dr. Ishaka Musa Barashanga, who he breaks down, he goes through and studies the history of all these holidays we've been taught to celebrate. So when we study, when we actually look at these myths, right? about Patrick. A lot of this stuff that we've been taught is wrong, okay? He, this, 
when they say Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland, number one, there's no evidence that snakes were ever in Ireland in the first place. Ireland is an island. The climate is very cold. Snakes don't live in cold climates. They can't survive in cold, cold, cold climates. There's no evidence that snakes ever lived in Ireland in the first place. The snakes that they were referring to were the snake people known as the Druids. All right. So how's everybody? How's everybody doing? All right. Let's look at some of your comments. Uh, spell the name, please. Oh, Dr. Shaka Musa Bershango. <laughs> um, that's a hard name to spell. Let me see. Let me pull. Let me try to pull pull it up here. Okay, you got uh, yeah Bershango. I'll bring up the uh, cover of the book because I deal with that in my presentation on Kwanzaa. Um, Dr. Ishaka Musa Barashango, B-A-R-A-S-H-A-N-G-O, Shango. Shango was a uh, Orisha of uh, Thunder, um, one of the deities coming out of um, Ifa from the uh, Yoruba of Nigeria, okay? Shango. All right. To read African people and European holidays and mental genocide by Dr. Shaka Musa Barashango. You can just Google that. Okay. You can Google that title. All right. So when we look at some myths about um, uh, St. Patrick's Day, all right. When we look at some myths about St. Patrick's Day. And a lot of people are blown away when I, you know, do presentations and, and talk about this information uh, uh, about St. Patrick's Day. Because uh, a lot of what we've been taught about Patrick uh, throughout the years uh, is wrong. Okay. And let me post it. If you like, if you like, so how you all like this type of information? Let me ask that question. How you all like this type of information? So if you like this type of information, and we posted a link there. You can register for the online courses that I teach, like Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. We have a six online course bundle, a six online course bundle uh, for $80, regularly $120. includes uh, Understanding Transatlantic Slave Trade. It includes the upcoming lecture I'm doing on the film Black Panther. It includes Great African Women in History, the Mothers of Civilizations, and some other ones. You can go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and register for that. Or we just posted a link there. You can register there as well, okay? And you can register for Understanding Transatlantic Slave Trade by itself, which is $50. It's a seven-session, 14-hour online course. There's 20 hours of bonus content, and it's, it's all on demand. It's all on demand. You can watch it at your own pace. All right, so let's look at some myths about Patrick. So one, we talked about how St. Patrick wasn't Irish. He was British. We talked about that already. St. Patrick's color is really blue, not green, okay? Um, and a lot of people don't know this. So there was, um, there are paintings of him, of Patrick wearing uh, a the vestments, the vestments, which are uh, lit liturgical garments, and articles associated primarily with the Christian religion. You see them with the vest on, and it's blue, okay? Traditionally, the 
color associated with him was blue, not green. Okay. Green is going to come later, and green comes from um uh the uh the four-leaf clover. I think it was the four-leaf clover, which is green. Okay. So St. Patrick's Day basically um was well St. Patrick's Day parade. First St. Patrick's Day parade takes place in 1762 in New York City, March 17th. But we know for thousands of years, uh, people, uh, the Irish were celebrating St. Patrick in, uh, for, for a thousand years, uh, the Irish were celebrating St. Patrick on his feast day, March 17th, which is the day he died, okay? Um, we know that St. Patrick did not drive the snakes out of Ireland. There's no evidence that the snakes were ever in Ireland in the first place. Now, the shamrock is not the symbol of uh, of Ireland, okay? Um, the real symbol of Ireland is a harp, a harp, okay? Um, St. Patrick used the, let's see, uh, corned beef and cabbage is not uh, a traditional Irish dish either. And let's see. The odds of finding the four-leaf clover are slim to none. Um, okay, that's another one. The odds of finding the four-leaf clover are slim to are slim to none as well. All right, all right. Uh, you can read everything you know about St. Patrick's Day is wrong from HuffingtonPost.com. Everything you know about St. Patrick's Day is wrong from HuffingtonPost.com. Uh, okay. Um, let me see here what I want to go to next. Okay, so we got that. Just a second here. I want to get into this topic of how the Irish became white. All right. How the Irish became white. All right, let's look at this one next here. And let me just check something. Okay, Patrick's color is blue. He is shown wearing blue vestments in most artworks. Uh, the shamrock is not the symbol of Ireland. It is a pop popular symbol, but the true symbol, uh, the official symbol is the harp. Um, And okay, we got that. Also, uh, 10 fun facts about St. Patrick's Day, WDTN.com. 10 fun facts about St. Patrick's Day, WDTN.com. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it's the, it's the four leaf clover that's uh, really doesn't exist. The four leaf clover. All right. So let's let's look at how the iris became white. How the iris became white. OK. And I've talked about this before, but a lot of people don't know that the Irish originally by Western powers were not considered to be white, especially by the English, because um, Ireland was a, a colony of uh, England. Ireland was a colony of England, uh, became a colony in uh, 1155 uh, A.D., I think it was. 1155 AD, 
So Ireland was the first English colony. In 1155 AD, Pope Adrian IV published a papal bull, giving Henry uh, II authority over Ireland. The document's, va the document's value was that it authorized invasion. Uh, check out bbc.co.uk, bbc.co.uk. Uh, uh, 1155 Ireland, the first colony. 1155 Ireland, the first colony. So when we look at some of the history of, of the Irish here in this country, right? Up until the mid 19th century, most Irish immigrants in America were members of the Protestant middle class, the Protestant middle class. When the Great Potato Famine hit Ireland in 1845 AD, close to 1 million poor in uneducated Irish Catholics began pouring into America to escape starvation, okay? So many of the Irish who were already here in the uh, mid 19th century, which were the uh, 18, mid 1800s, were Protestant and middle class. The Irish potato famine hits in 1845. You have uh, hundreds of thousands of people who die. Uh, and you have close to one million poor and uneducated Irish Catholics who began coming to the U.S. to escape starvation. Now, the Irish were despised for their alien religious beliefs and unfamiliar accents by the American Protestant majority. OK, these Irish Catholics who were coming in. All right. The, the immigrants had trouble finding even menial jobs when Irish Americans in the uh, when Irish Americans in the country in the in the uh, cities in the U.S. took to the streets on St. Patrick's Day to celebrate their heritage, newspapers portrayed them in cartoons as drunk, violent monkeys. Okay, and this is historical. You can go research this. The American Irish soon began to realize, however, that their large and growing numbers endowed them with a political power that had yet to be exploited. They started to organize. Uh, they started to organize in their voting block known as the Green Machine. The Green Machine became an important swing vote for political hopefuls. Suddenly, annual St. Patrick's uh, suddenly annual St. Patrick's Day parades became became a show of strength for Irish Americans, as well as a must attend event for a slew of political candidates. In 1948, President Harry Truman attended New York City's St. Patrick's Day Parade, a proud moment for the many Irish Americans whose ancestors had to fight stereotypes and racial prejudice to find acceptance in the new world. But the question has to be asked, how did the Irish go from not being considered white to being able to assimilate into the family of white people and rise through the ranks. So when we look at, um, there was a, uh, uh, when we look at Edmund Spencer, Edmund Spencer uh, had a work called The Works of Edmund Spencer with Observation of His Life and Writings, okay? And there's an article from, um, but we talked about the article from the BBC.UK. Uh, quote, they steal, they are cruel and bloody, full of revenge and delightening and deadly execution. Licentious swearers and blasphemers, common ravishers of common ravishers of women 
and murderers of children. Okay, this is what um, a writer named Edmund Spencer said of them. Um, the now James Silk Buckingham, another writer, wrote about the Irish. He said the immigrants who land at New York, whether they remain in the city or come or or come on in the interior, are not merely ignorant and poor which might be their misfortune rather than their fault, but they are drunken, dirty, indolent, indolent, and riotous, so as to be the objects of dislike and fear to all in whose neighborhood they congregate in large numbers. So when you, when you, when you have these um, Irish immigrants coming here because of the Irish potato famine, they're looked down upon, they're spoken of negatively. Uh, it, it's wondering what will you know what they would do to other white white women who were here, things like this. Now, some of the hatred towards the Irish probably has something to do with the fact that England conquered Ireland in 1155 A.D. Ireland was the first English colony. Pope Adrian IV published the Papal Bull. Um, the, the papal bull giving Henry II authority of Ireland, the document's value was that it authorized invasion. Now, the Irish are then going to immigrate to the former British colonies in the United States, which were, you know, former British colonies, not the U.S. These are historical statements from yesteryear describing a despised race of people in America. They are indicative of the sentiment of white people throughout this country who thought a subhuman species good for nothing but uh, but work good for nothing uh, uh, but for work and servitude might ruin America with their crime, with their poverty, and interbreeding with white women. They were not referring to Africans, Mexicans, or Muslims. They were referring to the Irish. Okay, so this is how uh, the Europeans who were here in this country viewed the Irish immigrants who were coming in the mid to late uh, 1800s, basically after uh, 1845 and all. This is how they this is how they viewed. Them. All right. So first, we should uh, get this out of the way. One of the favorite recurring themes of uh, white supremacists and racists in America is the idea that the Irish came to America as slaves and and uh, had it as bad as or worse than Africans, okay? And we see these memes on social media. So these are my notes I put together last year. I talked about this last year. These are my notes I'm referring to from last year. So we see these memes. You'll see them on Facebook today. You'll see them on Twitter. And it says that the Irish were slaves too. The Irish had it worse than Black people had a worse than African people. You don't see the Irish complaining about slavery. So why are you people complaining about slavery? Okay, that's false. That's not that's not accurate history. That's false. Okay, the Irish were indentured servants. Some of them they were indentured servants, but the Irish were never slaves. They were never they were never enslaved. That's that's something entirely different. Okay, all right. Let's continue. Okay, so according to those racialists, the European blood in the Irish made them uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. 
and integrate themselves into the opening arms of American liberty. They never they never bitched and moaned about their situation. OK, so they say, so why? So so why are 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 why are black people complaining? Why are you all still complaining? So all of this are wrong. In fact, uh, so all of this is wrong. As we reflect on the uh, the history of St. Patrick's Day uh, of the Trumpian era, of the Donald Trump era, and attacks on immigrants and a Muslim ban that Trump is is uh, still trying to fully get implemented, we should we should uh, remember when America passed laws against another group of immigrants. We should recall when this country tried to ban another group of people based on religion. We should never forget that both American and whiteness are social sociopolitical constructs that have evolved over a long period of time, always seeking exclusion and supremacy. And it was not so long ago that Irish Americans were on the outside looking in because it, it, now it wasn't it wasn't until the end of World War Two. That Italians and Greeks were classified as white by the by the white power structure, by the white power nation. OK, the end of World War Two, then the Greeks and the Irish are going to be classified as white. Before then, they weren't looked at as white because they in general, they're looked at as having darker complexions. And they were not looked at as white over a period of time. And they talk about this in, I think it's Hidden Colors 4, the religion of white supremacy. I think it's Hidden Colors 4, Hidden Colors 3, one of them. They talk about how over a period of time, who was considered white changes and expands. A lot of people don't know. If you saw the interview that, um, um, if you saw the interview that I did um, uh, with Dr. Claude Anderson, February 19th, talked about the U.S. Census Bureau. Go to census.gov, census.gov, and um, search for the 2010 census form. On the 2010 census form, under the racial classifications, it tells you that people coming from North Africa into the U.S. are classified as white. It tells you uh, people coming from Saudi, people coming from the middle, the so-called Middle East. Are classified as white by the U.S. government. People coming from Saudi Arabia are classified as white by the federal government. People coming from sub-Saharan African, sub-Saharan Africa, are classified as African or black. So over a period of time, who's classified as white by the white power structure and by the government expands. Okay. Somebody asked, um, how can you listen other than here on their phone? Um, we'll post the audio of this podcast uh, at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, where we upload all of our podcasts. AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We'll have the audio there sometime today. Okay. Um, okay. So let's continue. And there was an article from, uh, i trying to find this other article here. New York Times had a really good article. I don't know where I put it. I have all these articles here. Uh, it deals with how the Irish, um, how the Irish became white. I had it here. Oh, here we go. This is the other stack of articles I'm looking for. 
debunking a myth the irish were not white slaves too okay that was one and then we had how the irish became white was number this is uh debunking a myth the irish were not slaves too that's from the new york times liam stack march 17 2017 okay all right and in the article from the root.com when the irish weren't white uh the root.com when the irish weren't white there's an article there as well okay so i have a lot of sources this information okay and everybody how's everybody doing today hope everybody's doing well on this saint patrick's day we're learning about the real history of saint patrick okay and i'm not telling i'm not really i'm not trying to tell people what to do okay but if you're going to celebrate you should know what you're celebrating i'm not trying to tell people what to do if you want to celebrate okay all right but if you wear green on St. Patrick's Day, will you wear red, black, and green on African Liberation Day, May 25th? If not, why not? If you wear green on St. Patrick's Day, honoring a mass murderer, will you wear red, black, and green on African Liberation Day? Okay. <laughs> All right. And um, be sure to, uh, if you like this type of information, you know, uh, be sure to visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. AfricanHistoryNetwork.com definitely needs your support um, because that helps us to stay on the air, keep broadcasting, keep doing the research, paying the bills. All of my DVD lectures are there. Uh, we have an eight DVD bundle pack right now. We have the six course online bundle pack as well. That's all at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay. And uh, we also have uh, articles of mine you can read. You can listen to all of my audio podcasts as well. All of our audio podcasts are free for the time being. Uh, we've got uh, 800 of them there. I don't know how long they're going to oh, That stuff's going to be free, but <laughs> uh, you can listen to that also. Okay. All right. Let's continue. Okay. So um, we should recall when this country tried to ban another group of people based on their religion. We should never forget that both American and whiteness are social political structures or social political concepts, constructs. That have evolved over a long period of time, always seeking exclusion and supremacy. And it was not so long ago that Irish were on the outside looking in. Okay. Now the term American, uh, and and I've talked about this uh, in some of my previous lectures, right? And then all of my DVD lectures are at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. There are about thirty-five of them there. Uh, the term American originally referred to the Aboriginal or copper-colored people of the Americas. Uh, and this is who the uh, and this is who the Europeans found when they came to the Americas. The term American did not originally refer to Europeans. OK, um, if we if we go flip back over here and look at the uh, slide presentation here. And these are some of the. Um, this is some of the things we could cover in our, uh, my online class. Um, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. These are some of the actual slides, okay? So when we look at the term America, right? America, we would talk, comes from Amerigo Vespucci. But Amerigo, his real name was Aberigo Vespucci, okay? And he changes his name from Amer from Aberigo to Amerigo because he comes in contact with a group of black African people in what today is called Nicaragua, who call themselves the Los Amarisques, the Los Amarisques. 
And they named themselves after a nearby mountain called Sierra Amarique. Sierra Amarique. Ameri Amarique. Um, Jan Carew talks about this in his book, Fulcrums of Change, pages 91 and 105, Fulcrums of Change. And I interviewed Professor Kabakamane, one of my teachers from uh, the Hidden Colors documentaries, when the Black Friday documentaries together, as well as Elementary Genocide Part 3. I interviewed him February 3rd, 2016. And this podcast, go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can listen to it after you finish watching this broadcast. And it's called The Origin of the Word America. The origin, we go through and break down that history, right? So if we look at the... Um, 1828 edition of Noah Webster's Dictionary, 1828 edition of Noah Webster's Dictionary, which is online. You can go look at it right now. And it's called, um, you can look at it right now and it's, uh, just search for uh, 1828 Noah Webster's Dictionary. When you look uh, under the word American, the definition of the word American, it says a native of America originally applied to the aboriginals or copper colored races found here by the Europeans, which means that this is who the Europeans found when they got here. That means that the original people of America were not Europeans. And the term American did not originally refer to Europeans, but it's now applied to the descendants of Europeans born in America, right? But when we look at the uh, works from Dr. David M. Hotel, who wrote the book, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence, we know that the original, we know that the original uh, Americans were African people. These largely were the Khoisan, come from Southern Africa, have the oldest DNA on the planet. When we look at this country here, so, so we see them in South America, we see them in Central America, North America, and there are other African people, but they have the oldest DNA on the planet, okay? They were there first, the Khoisan. When we look at uh, page 14 of his book, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence. And this is, and, and see, and one of the things I do in the online course dealing with understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, we deal with uh, uh, 50,000 years of history. Then we deal with archaeological discoveries that are causing scientists to have to rethink everything. With page 14 of his book, he deals with evidence of an African presence found uh, that dates back 51,000 years ago in a campsite in Allendale, Allendale County, South Carolina, discovered by Dr. Albert Goodyear, who's an archaeologist at the University of South Carolina. Now, this discovery was made in 2004. Most people don't know about this. This discovery was made in 2004. This is what they found. They found artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, Egyptian writings, footprints in lava, genetic M174D haploid groups, dealing with DNA and genetics and linguistics. They found uh, skulls, uh, uh, linguistics, paintings, skulls, skeletons, structures, and tools. 13 different disciplines fairly documenting an African presence in this country going back at least 51,700 years ago, okay? At least 51,700 years ago, all right? And this was in Allendale County, South Carolina. All right, now, if we look at um, let's continue quickly here because all this history ties together. Now, this article is from ScienceDaily.com, which is a scientific journal, scientific website. This is from 
November 18, 2004, deals with Dr. Albert Goodyear's discovery. It's called New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. And it talks about how uh, this is a summary of the article. Radiocarbon tests of carbonized plant remains where artifacts were unearthed last May along the Savannah River in Allendale County, South Carolina, by University of South Carolina archaeologist Dr. Albert Goodyear, indicate that the sediments containing these artifacts are at least 50,000 years old, meaning that humans inhabited North America long before the last ice age, meaning that humans inhabited North America long before the last ice age. OK, so all this history ties together. <clears throat> so when I when I talk about how the term uh, uh, American originally referred to the aboriginal copper colored people of the Americas, uh, and were called this by Europeans. I wanted to give some background historical information so you understand what I'm talking about so you don't think I just pulled this stuff out of the air. All right. Okay, so um, in his book, The Renegade History of the United States, The Renegade History of the United States, Thaddeus Russell explains that the first large wave of Irish immigrants worked low-paying jobs, mostly building the canals along the Canadian border that other Americans would not do. The Irish were simultaneously accused of stealing all the good jobs and branded as lazy and shiftless. Kind of like Hispanics, especially Mexicans, are blamed by Trump and the Trumpsters for stealing all the good jobs. Even though you got, a, even though you have uh, right now 6.3 million available jobs in the U.S., right? 15.8 million jobs created under President Obama. 6.3 million available jobs. Mexicans, primarily, Hispanics in general, are blamed for taking uh, uh, taking people's jobs. The, the, the data doesn't jive with the rhetoric. The data doesn't jive with the rhetoric. What Trump did not tell people is that factory output has doubled since the 1980s, but corporations are, are, are producing products with one third the labor force because of automation, because of software programs, technology, things like this. So he blamed Mexicans, just like the Irish were blamed for taking people's jobs. He blamed the Mexicans, okay, for stealing white people's jobs, mainly, which is largely false. Okay, so the Irish were simultaneously uh, accused of stealing all the good jobs and branded as lazy and shiftless. They were also thought to be the non-white missing link between the superior European and the savage African-based uh, on stereotypes between the between the superior European and the savage African, based on stereotypes from the early American media, according to the Boston Globe. Okay. Uh, Boston Globe has a um, uh, a good article um, dealing with this, talking about the uh, the Know Nothing Party. We'll talk about them in just a minute here. The Know Nothing Party sounds a lot like Donald Trump supporters. Okay, um, article from the Boston Globe is called "Getting to Know the Know Nothings." Getting to know the Know Nothings, uh, January tenth, two thousand sixteen. So. The excerpt of this article from the Boston Globe says in the popular press, the Irish were depicted as subhuman, 
in the popular press, the Irish were depicted as subhuman. They were carriers of disease. They were drawn, they were depicted, drawn in caricatures, cartoons, depicted as lazy, clannish, unclean, drunken brawlers who wallowed in crime and bred like rats. Most disturbingly, the Irish were Roman Catholics coming to an overwhelming Protestant nation and their devotion to the Pope made their allegiance to the United States suspect. Their devotion to the Pope made their allegiance to the United States suspect. So the U.S. was largely a Protestant country. We're talking about the Irish coming in the mid to late 1800s because of the Irish potato famine, not the ones that were already here in the uh, late 1700s and early 1800s. We're not talking about those. We're talking about the approximately one million who were coming here who were poor, uh, who were poor Irish Catholics, okay, who were coming here because of the Irish potato famine that hits in 1845. So most disturbingly, the Irish were Roman Catholics coming to an overwhelming Protestant nation and their devotion to the Pope made their allegiance to the United States suspect. In response, a nativist movement was brewing to take the country back and make it great again. Take the country back and make it great again. In 1849, the secret order of the Star Spangled Banner was founded in New York to resist Catholic immigration. The order was uh, organized in local lodges whose activities were secret, and, and like the Freemasons, right? And uh, members had to be native born Protestant men. If asked about the order, the initiated to reply that they knew nothing. This is where that term comes from, the know nothing party, okay? They were to reply that they knew nothing. So this was in 1849 that the secret order of the Star Spangled Banner is founded in New York. Now in 1798, the US Congress passed three alien acts, three alien acts based mainly on fears of Irish Catholic uh, and anti-immigrant sentiments, 1798, okay? So this is um, the year before George Washington dies. George Washington dies in 1799. This is a few years after the U.S. Constitution is signed and passed and it passed and signed in 1787, passed in 1788, okay? This is um, seven years after the Bill of Rights which includes the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. Those were not original parts of the U.S. Constitution. Those are amendments to the Constitution added in 1791, okay? So uh, these new laws, these three alien acts, these new laws gave the president the power to stop immigration from any country at war with the U.S. and the right to deport any immigrant and made it harder for immigrants to vote. Then again, in the late 1840s, a nationalist political group called the Know Nothings sprang from a populist movement of poor whites who were dissatisfied with the two party system and started what was known as the American Party. OK, and they're going to be called the Know Nothings. And they're, they were intent on preserving America's culture by restricting immigration 
especially from Catholic countries, including uh, by Irish Catholics. OK, now this sounds a lot like Donald Trump supporters who have a fear, not necessarily of Irish Catholics. A lot of them are not thrilled about Catholics, but they have a fear of Muslims. OK, they have a fear of Muslims and they and they associate Muslim with being Arab and all Muslims are not Arabs. You got some white people who are Muslims. Right. But here you have the Know Nothing Party. There's a populist movement of poor white people in the 1840s. They were looking at the Irish as taking their jobs. They were looking at immigrants as taking their jobs. And this sounds just like Donald Trump supporters. Now, there's an article from Real, Real Clear Politics, Real Clear Politics called Immigration and the Rise and Fall of the Know Nothing Party. Immigration and the Rise and Fall of the Know Nothing Party. Okay. Uh, this article is from February 18, 2015. Now, we'll have this. Uh, I'll put this presentation on DVD also if you want to uh, order. It. We'll put this on DVD as well. OK. Immigration and the rise of the Know Nothing Party. OK. So on February 18, 1856, an anti-immigration political party held a nominating convention in Philadelphia. The American Party, the group called itself although everyone knew it as the Know Nothing Party, okay? It is instructive to look back at such events, especially in light of this nation's ongoing divisions about immigration reform. In the 1840s and 1850s, American domestic politics was in the process of dividing North from South over the issue of slavery. So this is still during slavery. This is before the Civil War. Civil War starts April 12, 1861 with the attack on uh, Fort Sumter in South Carolina. It ends June 2nd, 1865. Okay. So we're talking about the 1840s and 1850s. We know that the Underground Railroad starts in basically 1830. We know the Republican Party is founded in 1854. Okay as a direct result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which dealt with giving sovereignty to uh, uh, those U.S. citizens moving into Western territories to determine whether or not they wanted to have slavery in these Western territories as opposed to being dictated by the federal government. The uh, Republican Party is formed in 1854 as a direct result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and is formed by groups of abolitionists. We know that in 1860, November 6, 1860, the candidate for the Republican Party becomes president-elect. He was known as Abraham Lincoln, okay? And we know that six weeks after that, December 20th, 1860, that South Carolina succeeds from the union because they fear that Lincoln, who, who, who is the president-elect of the Republican Party, which is organized by groups of abolitionists, they fear he's going to free the slaves. So December 20th, 1860, South Carolina becomes the first state to succeed from the union, which a few months later, you have the beginning of the Civil War. OK, so in the in the 1840s and 1850s, American domestic politics was in the process of, of dividing north from south over the issue of slavery. Then a new source of angst presented itself. Huge surges in immigration to the U.S. from cultures and countries considered by some more exotic than previous waves that had arrived from England, Germany, and Scandinavia. On the West Coast, influxes of Chinese and Japanese workers found a new home. Millions more arrived in the East 
from uh, Ireland and Italy, most of these new pilgrims were Roman Catholics. And we see that the first anti-drug laws in this country are in 1875 in San Francisco, which were the anti-opium laws directed towards Chinese. Because white people had been using opium already. It was not a problem. The problem became when these other people started using these drugs. And what are these Chinese men going to do when they're high on opium? Are they going to try to rape white women? Okay. So 1875 Anti-Opium Act. We researched that also if you read uh, How White Folks Got So Rich, The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. Uh, that book from the Nation of Islam Research Group, they talk about it there as well. Now, several secretive political organizations were formed in reaction to this development, this immigration of these of these other people coming in. OK, some of the concern activists had been Whigs, W.H.I.G., the Whig Party, which was founded in 1843, if I remember correctly, 1843. And the Whigs. uh some had previously been Jeffersonian Democrats and, and uh, 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 Jeffersonian Democrats uh, all pro profess their worry that the character of the country was changing. They expressed many fears among them that the new settlers were more loyal to the Pope in Rome than the president of Washington, D.C. When you go back and look at the 1840s, 1850s, you look at the uh, know nothing party. This sounds a lot like what's taking place today. And you have uh, today, you have many white people, not all of them, but you have many white people fearing the browning of America. They know by about 2043 that there will be no dominant, there will be no one dominant cultural or racial ethnic group in this country. They, 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 they feel that they're being overran by Hispanics and other immigrants. They're, many of them fear Muslims, not all of them, but many of them fear Muslims. Donald Trump tapped into this fear. He continues to push this fear. OK. And so now they're so now these people who are descendants of immigrants now want to keep other immigrants from coming coming in because you're not the right type of immigrant. When many of their ancestors came from what Donald Trump would call S-hole countries. But now you're not the right type of immigrant. Okay, so when we look at the Alien and Sedition Acts, history.org, uh, history.com, I should say, history.com, uh, which, which is the official website of the History Channel. They have a, a search for the Alien and Sedition Acts. This, uh, with the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts in the summer of 1798, we talked about these three acts, right, which was targeting immigration. American national security was used for the first time as an excuse to engage in party politics. And for that reason, discussion of the enactments are as contentious today as they were then. This is why you have to understand history. A people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community because things happen in cycles. All this history, this happens in cycles. So when we fast forward and we ask the question, how did the Irish become white? So Thaddeus Russell suggests that it, the Irish became white by coalescing their political power while simultaneously 
assimilating into the American mainstream, specifically with jobs in civil service, which is why most city St. Patrick's Day parades are ostensibly celebrations of the police and fire departments, because the, the Irish went into the fire departments, they were allowed to rise through the ranks of the fire departments. If you look at any, uh, either most or all police funerals that take place in this country, regardless of the race or ethnicity of that police officer, usually when they have the police funeral, They'll have bagpipes being played. That's because of the Irish influence on the police department. OK, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just I'm explaining history. That's because of the Irish influence of the police department. I remember two or three years ago when the two police officers were killed in New York, two New York City police officers were killed. They were in their car, squad car. They were shot and killed. One was Asian. One was Hispanic, if I, think, if I remember correctly. And they televised the funeral, okay? They televised the funeral and they had a parade or something for them, right? And I watched it very closely. They showed bagpipes being played. They showed men wearing kilts, playing bagpipes. Neither one of the officers who were killed were Irish. This deals with the Irish influence on the police department, which is historical, okay? So this is, we have, this is why we have to understand this history. Everything that you see today, the reason why it exists is because of a historical foundation. And we can't figure out how to address the problems of today and the future without understanding the past. Okay, so in 1840, at the beginning of the great wave of Irish immigrant, uh, uh, in 1840, at the beginning of the great wave of Irish, Irish immigration, there was only a handful of Irish police on the force, 1840, okay? So we, you start seeing the Irish really coming in in droves in 1845. You have some already here, but 1845, that's when the Irish potato family hits. In 1840, um, there were only a handful of Irish police officers on the police force. By the end of that year, by the end of 1840, Irish made up more than one quarter of the New York City police. And by the end of the century, by the end of the 19th century, more than half of the city's police and more than 75 percent of its firefighters were Irish Americans. In addition, Irish were disproportionately represented among prosecutors, among judges and prison guards. Soon, the Irish cop was a stock figure in American culture. Once known as ape-like barbarians, the Irish were now able to show themselves as the most selfless and patriotic civil servants. They were allowed to assimilate. They were allowed to rise up. If you look at the uh, uh, movie Hula, okay, the movie Hula with uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Vanessa Williams, the cop that I think he's a captain or something like that. The cop who was terrorizing Lawrence Fishburne's character and his people who were running numbers, he was Irish. He was an Irish cop. Okay. If you watch any police funeral across the country, you will most likely see bad pipes being played, regardless of the racial ethnicity of the officer who was killed. This is a testament to the influence of the Irish on the police department. Now, in an article from Dr. Victor E. Kapler, uh, PhD, Victor E. Kapler, K-A-P-P-E-L-E-R, Associate Dean and Foundation Professor 
at the School of Justice Studies, Eastern Kentucky University. Um, he stated that, a, oh, uh, let's see. Also, check, let's see, which one is this? Also check out the article, A Brief History of Slavery and the Origins of American Policing. I think that was his article, A Brief History of Slavery and the Origins of American Policing. Let me see here. So I got all these articles here. So you gotta give me a minute here, just a second here. How's everybody doing? Share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends, invite your friends to tune in also, okay? And be sure to visit our website. How do you all like this type of information? I've got the article I'm looking for. How do you all like this type of information? Okay. All right. So if you like this type of information, uh, be sure to uh, you can register for the online courses that I teach, and most of them are on demand, including uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. We have a six-course online bundle pack uh, that you go order. As soon as you order, you can start watching. Okay, yeah, A Brief History of Slavery and the Origins of Policing. This is from PLS Online. This is from... Uh, uh, Eastern, let's see, is this Eastern Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky University. Yeah, just Google that. A brief history of slavery and the origins of American policing by Dr. Victor uh, E. Kapler. Okay, in this article, he says that the birth and development of the American police can be traced to a multitude of historical and legal and political economic conditions. Historical, legal, and political economic conditions. The institution of slavery and the control of minorities, however, were two of the more formidable historic features of American society shaping early policing. Slave patrols and night watches, which later became modern police departments, were both designed to control the behaviors of minorities. For example, New England's New England settlers appointed Indian constables uh, to police Native Americans uh, National Constable Association, okay, Native Americans. The St. Louis police were founded to protect residents from Native Americans in that frontier city. And many Southern police departments began slave, began as slave patrols. In 1704, the colony of Carolina um, developed the nation's first slave patrol. 1704, the colony of Carolina developed the country's first slave patrol. Slave patrols helped to maintain the economic order and to assist uh, the wealthy landowners in recovering and punishing slaves who, is, who essentially were considered property, essentially were considered property. And when you study the origins of the Second Amendment, part of the origins of the Second Amendment deal with putting down slave rebellions. That's what that regulated militia was for, put down slave rebellions, put down attacks by Native Americans, and to make sure the government did not have a tyranny over the people again like great britain did under king george iii okay now policing was not the only uh social institution enmeshed in slavery slavery was fully institutionalized in the american economic and legal order with laws being enacted at both the state and national divisions of government virginia for example enacted more than 130 statutes, statutes between 1689 and 1865. All this deals with law. All this deals with law and politics. 
You've got to understand law and politics to understand history. All this deals with law and politics. Okay. Uh, Virginia, for example, enacted more than 130 slave statutes between 1689 and 1865. Slavery and the abuse of people of color, however, was not merely a Southern affair, as many have been taught to believe. Okay. It was also up north. Okay, so look, this is what we have to do. We run out of time here. Only had two hours in this broadcast. So I got to create another broadcast to finish up. So uh, this broadcast is going to time out. I have to create another broadcast to finish up. When we come back, we'll be here for about 20 more minutes. So uh, you get the notification. Hey, follow us on Facebook at the African History Network. Follow us on Facebook at the African History Network. Okay. And then also, um, and you'll get the notification as well, because we're about to start another broadcast in about 15 minutes here so we can finish up. And then also visit uh, uh, visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, okay? Uh, you can register for my online courses. If you like this type of information, the online courses that I teach will totally blow you away because we have video clips. We got the PowerPoint presentation, as you saw. We have a, a six online course bundle pack right now um it's um eighty dollars regularly 120 dollars uh, almost all of it is on demand you can watch them around the world um and it enrolls you also in the upcoming uh lecture i'm doing on the film black panther and enrolls you in that automatically as well okay okay so uh we'll be back uh shortly Hey, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. I'm Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. Shout out to everybody who's uh, stayed with us and watched us. Uh, we'll be back. Um, we'll be back shortly as well. And uh, at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, you can read all the articles that are right there. You can, uh, we have uh, audio podcasts there as well. You can listen to for free. We have a recommended reading list of books there as well. Uh, so we have a lot of information there, okay? All right, we'll, uh, we'll be back shortly. Peace.